Kip Stewart, Vice President and Chief Improvement Officer for Baptist Memorial Healthcare. And today is another episode of Connecting the Dots podcast. Hey, everybody. I'm H.F. Mason. I'm a general surgeon and chief medical officer at Baptist Memorial Hospital, DeSoto. And hey, everybody. I'm Jake Lancaster. I'm an internal medicine physician and the chief medical information officer for the Baptist system. Well, today we are so excited and honored to have Clint Paget, and you're going to learn so much from Clint. Clint, would you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and, and, and what your discipline is? Sure. So I grew up in South Carolina and then joined the Navy right out of high school, spent six years in the Navy. And I like to say that this, I got out of the Navy and went to work in a shipyard. And there's probably no greater motivation to go to college in the world than to work in a shipyard in Norfolk, Virginia, in December and January, which is exactly what I was doing. So I was lucky enough to get into Georgia Tech. I have an electrical engineering degree from Tech and I have an MBA from Duke and started 27 years ago, started working with a company called Project Success. And what we do is we plan and control projects for clients and also teach project management methodologies. Clint, once again, thank you for being here. And Jake and I, as we start start learning more about you and learning more about what you do, we just want you to know that that in our in our journey for uh, continuous improvement, we're very, very early in our journey. And and one of the things that I've noticed is that when we when we start thinking about things that we want to improve, we have all these grandiose ideas and we know what we want to do, but then it just we don't have a plan how to implement it and things just kind of fizzle out over time. And, and, and that's where you guys come in with project management and tell us, tell us a little bit about what you do and how you help organizations uh, implement, implement their plans. Well, we have a course that we teach called the project success method, which is really in two days, we try to give people the basics on how to plan and control projects. And then we come, we can follow along behind that and actually come into an organization and help that the same group of people that just took the training, we can help them plan their project and their environment, with their unique, you know, unique challenges and their terminologies and all that, and then help them get up to speed and rolling. And our, our goal is really to work ourselves out of a job. You know, we're a small boutique organization. We've been in business for, for almost 40 years, 39 years now. And, you know, we don't have the capacity to be everywhere. We're not Accenture. We don't want to come and stay. So we want to get you get you trained, get you up to speed and get you rolling so you can do it on your own. That's really how we consider to, uh, what our success is, if you can do it when we leave. So you can customize depending on the tools and strategies that that particular organizations use. If some use Kata and, and the Toyota production system and others use Lean Six Sigma, you can sort of sort of customize that for your customers. Yeah, it's really bolt on. It doesn't matter what your internal systems are. We don't override them. We just support them. So, you know, we work, we do a lot of work with Caterpillar. Of course, they're big Six Sigma. Uh, we do a lot of work with Coca-Cola Company, uh, which is not Six Sigma, but other type processes. So really it doesn't matter. We can, the processes are really simple and generic and nobody ever leaves, you know, after having done the sessions, nobody goes, that was something that was rocket science. It's not. It's really simple stuff. It's in fact, it's really common sense. But as everybody knows, common sense isn't all that common. Yeah, <laughs> sure. So so, Clint, when I was in, in fellowship, informatics fellowship, you know, we, we took some courses on project management and uh, I've worked at some organizations that had you know very good project management and they had, you know, a, a department that that's all they did. And I've worked at some where you got to working on a project and they had somebody that in name was the project manager 
but really didn't have the same skill set as somebody that, you know, maybe had a certification in it. Uh, can you talk a little bit about, you know, what you've seen as far as working with companies about, uh, you know, I guess the depth of project manage- management expertise and, and what something like your company can bring to the table uh, to a place that maybe doesn't have anything that mature? So I, I think project management is really interesting because whenever you say the words project management, there are two types of people, those that want to grab a chair and sit down and the ones that want to run screaming from the room. Right. And I think the reason that people want to run screaming from the room is because their whole career to that point is if somebody said, hey, we're going to use project management. What that really meant was Joe was going to sit over there in the corner by himself, build the task list without anybody's input assign you to the task without asking you, pick a duration from you, apparently from a random number generator, not something that you actually bought into. And now we have a schedule we're going to beat you over the head with for the remainder of the project. Well, if that's project management, I want to run screaming from the room as well, because that's not that's you know project management to be to be helpful and not punitive. And helpful project management is we sit down as a team and we collaborate through conversations, right? We have a conversation about what is the scope? And if you and I don't agree, then let's argue about it until we come to some consensus on it. And once we have that understanding about what the project is, okay, now what are the different cross-functional areas we need to bring in to, to talk about this project? And we ask that person, Sally, now that you know the project, what are your tasks? And Joanne, now that you know the project, what are your tasks? I'm not gonna tell you what they are. You tell me what they are. And then you tell me, okay, what do you need to do your work? What do you need from other people? And also, only you, Joanne and Jill and Sally, only you know your workload intimately. So you tell me, how long will this task take? Taking into account all the other things you're working on at the same time and your day job and the fires you got to go put out. You tell me how long it takes. And through that conversation, we actually build a plan that the team walks away from going, that's great. I, I can live with that plan. I can deliver on that plan. And oh, by the way, that plan is only going to last for, you know, only be good for about 24 hours and something will change. And that's okay because the process we bring to bear says, absolutely, your plan is going to change. There's no way, I don't care how good you are, there's no way you can plan with exact certainty for six months in the future. There are things are going to happen, right? So we need to be able to adjust our plan on a regular basis. So it's a part of the process that we talk about is coming together either every week or every other week in a formal session for like one hour getting the team back together and say, hey, we have the plan. That's great. But what really happened last week? What do we know today we didn't know last week? What new tasks do we need to add? What can go away? What are you having trouble with we need to add more time to? And so when we leave that one-hour meeting, the schedule is accurate again for about 24 hours. But we, we have to keep coming back together on a weekly basis or every other week just to bring it back, back up to, uh, to, to proper terms. It sounds like that's a big pitfall in in project management is the failure to be able to, as Skip mentioned before we started, to be able to pivot. You know, we've invested all this time in this this great looking project, and by golly, we're going to stick to it, come heck or or, or, uh, high water. Yeah, so there are really kind of two camps right now in the world on project management. You have the the traditional waterfall, which is and if you ask somebody, so the other camp is agile. And if you ask somebody who does agile about waterfall, they paint this really staid picture of it's cast in stone and you can't ever change it and nobody ever talks and you you plan everything to the nth degree on day one and and then two years later you just get what you get. And then of course agile, you know that, that's 
I've listened to some, uh, some, I was actually in a McKinsey conference and they talked about agile sometimes gets used as an excuse not to do project management. <laughs> you know, so, you know, we're not going to, we're just doing agile. So I can only tell you what's in the next sprint. That's all I know. How many sprints? Oh, I don't know. How long is the project going to take? Oh, I don't know. But we're doing agile, right? And so what we try to do is bridge that gap. And we, we've been around, like I said, for 40 years. So we've preceded agile. But, you know, for our, for our process basically says, listen, you don't know what's going to happen nine months from now. So let's leave that at a higher level. You know, let's not put a bunch of detail on that stuff. But what you do know about is the stuff that's happening right now and is going to start in the next couple of weeks. So for those activities, you know, those items, let's let's break that down to be more granular. Now, with a caveat, our granularity, even for near term activities, is between five and 10 working days. We don't want to micromanage and get into the hours. We don't even like a lot of one day tasks. We really want to try to keep things around the five to 10 working day range because that's that seems to be the right balance of giving you the flexibility on any given day to decide what's the most important thing to work on that day, but also not letting you hide in a really long, you know, 60 day task where I might get myself in trouble. We have this concept called shifting the worry curve. We want to shift the worry curve on the project by planning early and you want to shift the worry curve on the activities by having them be granular enough that you have some visibility into what's actually happening. So for our process, we kind of have the the, the agile of the five and 10 day work streams on the front end, but we have the ability of like the waterfall to predict when we're going to finish the project. No, that, that makes sense. And you know, I think that's funny regarding the, the agile concept and not doing project management. How does that tie into, you know, setting your, your scope for the project? You know, do, do you notice that with waterfall approaches, they, they kind of stay within scope and with agile, they t- maybe get some scope creep or, or how do you see that playing out? I think both processes are subject to scope creep. I mean, it really, uh, they can, because obviously in Agile, you just keep throwing stuff into the backlog and the backlog gets bigger and bigger, which is going to drive more and more sprints. So I think, you know, that's that's legitimately scope creep. But on the other hand, in, just, in Waterfall, it's also subject to scope creep because people keep throwing scope in from customer comes in. And so I have two visions, or I have two perceptions of scope creep. Scope creep can come from two places in a project. It can come from, people above the project manager, so senior leadership, the customer, marketing, whoever that is, they can drive scope creep. And I'm okay with that because I believe the customer has every right to ask for more as long as the team has the same right to say no problem, but that's going to take us eight more weeks and 50,000 more dollars. That negotiation has to happen. It's not realistic to say, we'll just do more without any extra time or money. I mean, what you're saying to me is I lied to you. I, I, I padded my schedule purposely. And that's I don't think people do that on purpose. Right. So we don't want that. And the other time you get scope creep, actually, which is more dangerous, it comes from the people on the team. The people on the team, they are their heart is in the right place. I mean, they really want to do the right thing for Baptist. Right. They want to be they want to be good, good team members. And so they say, you know, we've had this problem for years in this other area of the organization. And with this project, which has nothing to do with that, by the way, but with this project, it's going to open the door that we can get through to go solve that problem. And the problem, the challenge we have there is this customer for this project doesn't care about that problem over there you've had for years. And so and so everybody says, well, it's just this one little change. The problem is when you add up all those changes, it's not small. It's actually quite large. And you were, and the way I say it is you are stealing from the project and time and money to fix problems that don't, that don't matter to this customer. The example I love to use is if I take my car to the dealership to get the oil changed and I go back and pick it up and I have a bill for $1,200. 
And I'm looking at the bill. I'm like, wait, wait, what is this? I just wanted my oil change. And I look at the bill and it says, we rotated the tires. We flushed the radiator. We flushed the differentials. We replaced all your belts. I'm like, what is this? And the guy goes, well, the hood was up. <laughs> we did everything we could while the hood was up. You're yeah. going to need to get that stuff done anyway. And I'm thinking, no, I was selling my car tomorrow. I was never yeah. going to get this work done. So you have to be careful of scope creep. And I, you know, I don't want to say that one is worse than the other, but I do think that both camps are subject to it. So the way we combat scope creep is through a document called a charter. And in the charter document, we clearly agree as a team what's in scope and what's out of scope. And then we make sure that lines up with what the customer's expectations are. And then we make sure that everything we do in the project goes up against and matches up against that charter document. Yeah, that's really good. Um, I don't I don't think we do in, enough of that in really setting the scope for projects. Um, but one of the other concepts that that kind of brought to mind was this uh, triple constraint concept where, you know, it can't be fast, cheap and good. Can you talk a little bit of, uh, more about that? Yeah, that's a very common one. The other one I hear a lot is time, cost, quality, pick any two, right? Which is a, <laughs> a takeoff on that one. So I, I understand that philosophy, right? The philosophy is it's hard to deliver on all three dimensions. But I also put myself in the customer's shoes and the customer is not going to be happy with two out of the three. So what we have to do is we have to get something we can deliver on all three that the team actually can do that the customer is going to be happy with. So, of course, the customer is going to tell us up front, I want it by this time. I want all this feature set and I want it done with this amount of money. And we're going to go off as a team and build that project plan. And we're going to try to do what we can. And you think about time, cost, as quality as three levers that you have to pull on a project. And those levers are interrelated. So as you move one, it has an effect on the others. And so it's this dance we're pulling on the different levers, trying to get something that the team is going to be able to do without breaking the laws of physics and that the customer is going to be happy with. And what we find is sometimes that works, but sometimes you have to go back to the customer and have a reality check that says, listen, we have beat our heads against the wall. There's no way we're going to be able to meet this, this expectation. So can I do one of three things? Can you give me more money because I can solve the problem with more money? Or can I have more time? I, if you give me two more months, I could do it. Or can we drop this one feature? Can I drop, can we reduce the scope of the project? You know, I did a project for a company here in Atlanta. I won't name the company, but they're a, a major network, if I'll put it that way. And we were doing a high definition project. And they wanted to, we're planning, I think it's in April. And by November, they wanted to be all high def and all their studios worldwide. And we, we sat together for three days and planned that project. And by the end of day three, we realized we we're not going to be able to hit November. The best we could do was February of the following year. And we had the, the critical path Gantt chart, which everybody talks about. We had that and we showed them why it couldn't be done. And for this particular case, it was a technology a piece of equipment we needed. We couldn't get because it was there was a high demand for it. We were late to the game. And so at the end of the day, the customer, internal customer agreed while they wanted November, they understood why it was going to have to be February. And they accepted that and the team delivered on that. So I think yeah, that negotiation has to happen. So to me, it's not time, cost, quality, pick any two. It's time, cost, quality, pick all three that we can agree with. Clint, before we started recording, you you mentioned that your firm has done project management for Coke for several years and specifically uh, the winter summer and winter Olympics for Coke and, and that you had spent a couple of months in, in Tokyo this summer during the Olympics. Tell us a little bit about that experience and in the, the scale of that project. I mean, what, what all does, did that include? I mean, is that, you know, coordinating signage and concession stands and all, all of that stuff? Yeah, it's all of the above. So, as, yeah, you're right. We have been we have been fortunate enough to do all the Olympic planning for Coca-Cola since 1992. 
So all the Summer and Winter Olympics, as well as the uh, FIFA World Cup since 1998, and also the Euros, UEFA Euros. And whenever the, you know, if you think about these worldwide sporting events, I like to joke, it's, it's like planning a party at your house. It's just more people come and it lasts more days, okay? Now, if you're having 17-day parties, I'd like to come to one of those, but you know, because the Olympics last for 17 days. And thousands and tens of thousands of people come to them. But it's all the things you just said. We have to we have to have project plans around signage and concession stands and training how to how to load the equipment. You know, what's also interesting is with the Olympics, you have a, a crowd that's they kind of ebb and flow. They'll go down and watch some of the games, some of the matches that come back up. But if you go to a FIFA World Cup event, those people are religious. Okay, I mean that is that is religion for them. And what will happen is as soon as the match is getting ready to start, everybody goes down into the bowl or inside the stadium and nobody comes out to get Cokes or anything else. Right. And it's halftime. Everybody comes out. And so you have to have you, there's no way that you can reload the machine, get it cold in time to give it back to them. So you have to have plans for how you're going to pre-chill the product. What's our ice plan? That volume of people, the concession stands are, are locked. So we have to have mobile carts and hawkers that walk around selling. You have marketing projects, you have hospitality programs, you have uh, um, vending programs, you have recycling programs. I mean, there's just a tremendous amount that goes into one of those projects. And so, we start planning those two years in advance, by the way. Two years in advance, we start planning them. We first get there, they always, because the, every team is new, they'll go, man, this is really early. And by the end of our first two weeks there, they go, I wish we'd done this earlier. Yeah. You know, so you mentioned earlier, we we're talking about agile and you know, needing the ability for a project to kind of shift directions. And so obviously these last two years with COVID-19 and the pandemic has you know, presented a, a big hurdle for big events like the Olympics. So how did y'all adjust? What did you need to do? And, and how did that work as far as your project plan goes? So the project plan obviously had to shift, right? But that's, so that was an extreme shift, but all projects are going to shift. I mean, I, I said earlier, your Gantt chart's only going to be good for about 24 hours because something will be different. You, you, there was a, you'll find an activity that you didn't think about or somebody gets sick or something else happens. Something's always going to happen. So you have to have plans that are living, breathing documents that you can adjust on the fly. And then the Olympics, that's, that happens in all the Olympics as well. But with the pandemic, they ended up shifting it by a year. So they called it the Tokyo 2020 plus one Olympics. And of course, it was changing right up to the last second because I got there on June 30th and we initially thought there was going to be some spectators. And then they said it's going to be Japanese locals only. And then they got no spectators. And so there's a constant adjustment that has to happen. So then we had to start about we, I mean, the Coca-Cola company locally in Tokyo I had to start saying, well, we don't need as many people and start scaling back. And so there's a constant there's a constant uh, adjustment that has to happen in any project plan, no matter how complex or how simple. And, and so I know you've been doing, you know, the Olympics and you've been doing FIFA for many years now, but suppose you were given a new large project like that or, or you know, when you started back in, in 1998, how do you first assess a, a new project that is very, very large uh, that you have to take on? It's about getting the right people in the room, understanding from the customer what it is, what her or his expectations are about the project. And then realizing who, what cross-functional people do I need to bring into this team? Do I need procurement involved? Does legal need to be involved? Marketing, manufacturing, supply chain, who needs to be in the room? Bring them in, have them help me write the charter because it's their project, not mine. It's, it's our project, right? Have them understand the conversations that take place on 
why we're doing this, what the scope is. Hey, by the way, we're not going to touch that area over there. We're going to roll it out only inside the main hospital, not across all branches at first. This could be a second phase. Having those conversations to really get our head around what this project is. And then once we know that, then each team in the project charter will also talk about, okay, what are the major deliverables for this project? You know, what are the physical things we're going to walk away from the project with? Is it documentation? Is there training programs? And we, we get we capture that. And we take each one of those deliverables and now we start to drill that down. So it really actually becomes quite simple. I won't say it's well, I mean, it's not it's not complex. I put it that way. I won't say it's easy, but it's not complex because once you realize what the big buckets of work are, which we call deliverables, you take each one of those and you say, all right, now within this bucket, what are the smaller buckets, which we call sub deliverables? And then take that bucket and say, now, what are the activities or the tasks for each one of these? And at that moment, it's really simple because you're just trying to understand what the activities are. Then the next step is to take them and map them out. On day one, these things can start. When steps two and 22 are done, we can do step 44. And you lay them all out, and you can dump it into software and have the software do all the math for you. And keep in mind, that's just your baseline because every week you're going to get back together and add some activities, delete some activities. Hey, this activity is supposed to finish Friday. It didn't. I'm going to need two more weeks. Make those kind of adjustments. So it really it's a process. It's not rocket science, but it is something you have to have some structure around and a, a be. You have to be in the you have to be in the process. You can't skip steps. It's not complex, but you can't skip steps. Can't skip steps. Clint, you talked about the importance of having all the stakeholders involved, and, and of course that involves communication. And and here at Baptist, we we use TWI a lot, training within industry, and and part of that is is job relations and. You know, one of the things that we learn when we go through JR training is is always let people know in advance about things that are are could affect them. And and how important is that when you're, you know, as you're trying to implement these projects, when you might may not have those stakeholders around the table at that time? You know, one of my favorite sayings by George Bernard Shaw is the single biggest uh, problem with communication is the illusion that it has happened. I mean, how many times do you get an email and misinterpret it or you you know, it, you need conversation is the more powerful way to communicate. If you do stuff through asynchronous communication where it's one way, it's so easy for that to get lost in translation. But yeah, I can I can send 20 emails back and forth. I can just pick the phone up and have a five minute conversation. We'll solve this. Right. So I think that's part of it is making sure we're communicating. And for me, that communication mostly takes form in the form of conversation. Because that's such it just it just cuts right to the heart of the matter. It cuts, you know, and also if I send you an email, you might misinterpret the intent. But if I'm on the phone with you, I can hear you misinterpret that intent. If I'm on Zoom, I can see your face. And I go, well, sorry, let me let me say that differently. And I can't do that because then the other person, if it's an email, they they get ramped up and spun up and they're going to fire something back. And then I'm going to get spun up and it spirals out of control when there was no real intent in the in the first place. Right. So the communication piece is really important. And I and I'm I'm fine with with asynchronous communication as an adjunct. Hey, by the way, great conversation today. Here's what we talked about. This is what I heard. Is this what you really meant? I think that's great. But I still think we have to have what you and I are doing today, which is having this conversation that's really difficult to replace. You can't replace that. You know, I thought this was what you were going to ask, HF, but uh, I'm, I'm glad you didn't. So I get to ask it. But, um, <laughs> you know, talking about having the importance of having the right people in the room when you're you're planning these projects in, in healthcare, you know a lot of the projects that we we do 
involve physicians, but it is very difficult to get physicians to be in the room at the time of project planning. Uh, thinking about like a, a large project like an electronic health record implementation that I've, I've done a few of, um, mostly the people in the room are the supporting staff, nursing administrators, and so on, and IT. Um, and occasionally you'll get a physician to drop by for a few minutes just because their, their schedule is, is usually filled with patients. And if they're not seeing patients, they're not uh, getting paid. Um, so you know, how do you work around a constraint like that? Because what I often see is if they're not in the room, then decisions get made that adversely affect them and make the rest of the people in the room's job a little bit easier. <laughs> yeah, or, or the other side of that coin is if I'm in the room and then they weren't there at all for the planning and then we think we're done and they, they drop in and go, by the yeah. way, we'll just blow Yeah, we need all this. Right? Yep. So I think that in that situation, obviously the best case scenario is they actually come to the planning sessions in the entirety, right? But at least what they should do is, is come at the beginning give their feedback of their thought process, what the expectations are, here's the things I want to make sure you guys include. And then if they can come back towards the end, we can say, hey, here's what we did based on your feedback and your input. Is this right? Is this what you meant? And let them at least have their say on the front end and the back end. And I'm happy to have them as long as they want to be there, but they certainly should should come give their, their vision in the front end and then make sure that we interpreted that vision correctly on the back end before we begin execution. Because once you begin execution, now you're spending money and we don't want to be wasting dollars doing the wrong project. I was actually going to answer part of your first question is your earlier question as well, which is I thought you were going with the whole training piece. You know, one of the things we have to be careful of is we want to create a, a culture that you don't shoot the messenger because there's going to be bad news in project work. There's going to be bad news and nobody benefits if you hide that bad news. So I fully expect, I don't, I don't want to say that I'm happy to see it, but I fully expect there's going to be bad news. And I'm actually okay with that. What I'm not okay with is bad news you've known about for weeks and you kept hoping a miracle was going to occur and it would go away that I'm only finding out about now because what you've done is you've wasted six weeks of time. We could have fixed it, right? My options to fix that problem now are greatly reduced because how much time has elapsed. So I want to create a culture where we don't shoot the messenger, where people are open and willing to come. Hey, Clint, we had this really big problem. Vendor promised me they're going to deliver on time, but now I found out they're three weeks late. Okay, let's deal with it. Let's put it in the plan. Let's see what the impact is. Maybe, maybe it didn't have a big, big impact, but if it does, then everybody. And the other thing is, people sometimes think that if they broke it, they have to fix it. And with project work, the beauty is you're going to have a chain of activities that drives the end of your, of your project which in technical terms is called the critical path. And anybody, anybody on that critical path can help fix the problem, not just the person who caused the issue. And so that's that's where the team focus comes back in because we're going to have to be accountable to each other. And maybe maybe I'm the problem this time. My vendor's the problem, but you're going to help me out because next time maybe your supplier or your, your activity will be the problem and I'm going to help you out. And we have that team approach that actually makes project work very successful. And, and I think it makes it more fun. So I was just going to ask about expectations. You, you mentioned, you know, the vendor being three weeks late. I, I think I'd heard some report, um, you know, and we've all had people come work on our house, you know, remodeling or something like that. And it's it's never it, <laughs> the number of weeks that they say it is. And I actually heard that in the UK with, with their national planning for projects, they recently just started doubling the cost and doubling the amount of time that was that came in on the, the bids. And it, and it was way more accurate than the actual bids. What are your um, what are your thoughts on on expectations for for delivery from those sorts of things? Well, the top, I mean, I've been I've been on the house side of that as well, so I, I feel your pain there. But 
and, and so sometimes we don't have, you know, if I could go back, what I'd like to do is some of these organizations in their contracts, they need to write in, you know, the, the clauses that say there's penalty fees, penalty clauses if you don't do this wrong time. And and then also I try to help that person by saying, listen, give me your schedule. Show me the schedule that says you're going to meet this duration. Right. And again, you have every right to change it because supply chain issues or whatever. I understand there's all these things out of your control, but. You, what we always want to do is we want to plan for what's most likely going to occur based on what we know right now. And then we'll adjust the plan to make it longer if necessary, or maybe even shorter if that's the, the way things are going. But I want to get a schedule from that person. And ideally, I'd like to have in the contract clauses that say, if you don't hit this, there's a certain amount of leeway. But after that, you know, you're going to feel some pain. There's going to be some penalties involved. Now, I, if you find a contractor that will do that on your house, let me know, because I haven't found one of those yet. Right. So there's certainly there's certainly some limitations on that. But what I find with those guys, at least, is when they come in and say we're going to get this done in four weeks, I'm looking around thinking there's no way. So I would just have the conversation. Steve, listen, man, I, I'm, I'm going to give you the work. So tell me, how in the world is this going to be four weeks? Because, you know, what about this and what about that? And try to poke some holes so that they come away you know, with a more realistic vision of how long it's going to take. Because I think this is famous for salespeople, right? They'll tell you what you want to hear just to get their foot in the door. And then and then everything just gets blown out. And I'm of the opinion we should just get it out on the table up front. Let me go into it with the open expectation of it's really going to take eight weeks because I'm expecting eight weeks. But if you tell me four weeks and it takes eight weeks, that, that last four weeks is painful because I've been expecting four weeks. And I think it's probably painful for them as well. So we need to create that expectations where I'm not going to shoot the messenger, but we're going to have an open dialogue, and then I, but I'm going to expect you to live up to what you tell me. Yeah, you talk you talk about um, you're not shooting the messenger, you know that that and culture is so is so important, and you have to have that respect and trust uh, of each other so that uh, you aren't you don't have fear of reporting bad news. And a lot of times that's I, I'm the chief chief center when it comes to that I, I don't like reporting bad news and sometimes i tend to try to avoid it when when the best thing to do is just get it out there and, and, and let them know yeah I mean, that's human nature right we nobody wants to get bad news and we don't want to be the reason the project's going to be late and, and we secretly are hoping i'm, I'm a smart guy i'm going to figure this out right We're, the miracle is going to occur or what i'm really hoping is somebody else is more late than i am because they take the heat instead but to me it's just you know, now, if I create if, if the people I'm talking to have an open conscious and they're willing to have a dialogue and say, hey, this happened. OK, it happened. Now, if this if it's the same person with the same problem over and over, then that's a coaching opportunity that I need to have a conversation with. Is, hey, listen, you apparently are the world's worst duration estimator. Let's get you some help with that. Or, you know, you're really bad with vendor management. How can we support you with that? But it, anybody can make mistakes. And we want to take those or, or not even mistakes. You're, it's not your fault the vendor lied to you, right? And he's going to deliver late or, or the product you wanted was on that ship that got stuck in the Suez Canal for a month. I mean, these are things that are going to happen. And you have to be open and honest because to be honest with you, in my 30 years of doing this, the miracles don't occur, right? The problems don't go away. They just grow. They, that's like compound dishes. The longer you don't talk about them, the bigger they get. And the harder they are to solve and the more expensive they are to solve. So it's better just to get it out on the table. Well, Clint, thank you. This has just been this has been amazing today. Uh, I do want to uh, as we bring this you know, episode to an end, I want to want you to kind of tell us a little bit about how people can learn more about you. I know that you have a blog. I know you have a podcast. 
I know you've written many books. I think you have a brand new book that just recently came out. Tell us a little bit about you, about the book, about the podcast, so that folks that are listening, if they want to learn more. Sure. There's lots of places. You can go to projectsuccess.com to learn more about us as a company. You can go to clintonmpaget.com. That's P-A-D-G-E-T-T. And you'll see the books listed there. You can get them on Amazon. The first book came out in 2009 called The Project Success Method. And the one that you were just mentioning came out in January of this year on Forbes Books called How Teams Triumph. I have a podcast called The Conversation with Clinton and Paget that's on Forbes Books Radio. And then the blogs are both on the website and for Clinton and Paget and ProjectSuccess.com. And one thing I'd like to, to mention before we close is they I love this story. They did a survey back in 1997, U.S. News and World Report did, and they asked people, I'm going to give you a list of names and I'd like for you to tell me. What chance you think this person has to getting into heaven? Now, when I give you the names, you're going to see it's, it's a pretty old list, but I think it's eye opening. So Bill Clinton, 52 percent chance to get into heaven back in 1997. Hillary Clinton got 55 percent. She got an extra three percent for putting up with Bill. Right. Uh, Princess Diana, who this happened right before she passed away, was 60 percent. Um, Michael Jordan, 65 <laughs> percent. His teammate, Dennis Rodman, 28 percent. Clearly a bachelor, right? <laughs> Now, Oprah Winfrey was the highest on the list at this point, 66 percent, proving you can't indeed buy your way into heaven. Right <laughs> now, the last person they asked about was Mother Teresa. What percent chance do you think they gave Mother Teresa for getting into heaven? If Oprah Winfrey got 66 percent, what do you think they gave Mother Teresa? Ninety six. Yeah, I'm thinking I, I knew it wasn't 100 because we have the <laughs> naysayers. and I'm thinking it's in the high 90s. Nope. Seventy nine percent. Tough crowd. 79% gave, gave Mother Teresa a chance of getting that better chance of getting in heaven. One person scored higher than Mother Teresa at 87%. That person was the people being surveyed. <laughs> they gave wow. themselves a better chance of getting into heaven than Mother Teresa. So when I first heard this story, the guy that described it described it this way, and I love this analogy, he says, let me get this straight. I get to heaven and St. Peter says, I'm sorry, we only have room for one of you. I look at Mother Teresa and go, excuse me, ma'am, this lot's for me. And I walk in. <laughs> so I, I really thought about, so why is that? Why would we give ourselves a better chance of getting into heaven than some of these other people on the list? And I think it's because we judge ourselves based on intentions. I intend to do that. So I give myself credit. We judge others based on what they actually did. So when you think about project work or any, any kind of work, if, it, if, it is, if it's the end of the week and I put in 60 hours this week, Listen, I did my part. I've done more than my share. It's not my fault that the boss has more on my plate than I could possibly do. So these three or four items I didn't get to, I give myself credit because I put 60, you know, 60 hours in this week. And so what, what I'd like to leave people with is you have to judge yourself, not on intentions, but what you actually did, because other people, your intentions don't matter to other people. And it's all about making sure you're going to deliver on what you promise. Well, Clint, this was great. Thank you for being such a leader in the in the field of project management thank you for inspiring me it was the whole reason i reached out to you because i thought listening to you was so inspirational and just thank you so much uh, for the work you're doing and one last comment is if you need someone to carry your bags when you go to do the next olympics i'm there i'm, I'm there for you surprisingly that's a pretty long line <laughs> yeah, I bet, I bet. thank you so much for your time no, thank you for having me it's been a pleasure thanks Clint. Thank thanks gentlemen